I wasn't actually checking the message. It's <laughs> just I'm recording this message. Uh, if you want to open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. If you haven't been with us, we've been going through Genesis uh, 1 through 11. We're in Genesis 6. We're going to be looking at verses 9 to the end of chapter 7 today. We're looking at the flood. And a title for the message is like, how do you call it anything else but the flood? It's in your, in your face. It is what it is. I don't know if any of you had uh, kids growing up or have children right now. You read them the story of the flood in, uh, in a children's Bible. It's not that accurate. <laughs> like it's often it's a picture of the animals are smiling. Everyone's smiling. The sun is shining. That's not, that's not what the, the Bible actually talks about, the flood. I think sometimes, and not a knock on, on children's Bibles, we read them to our kids, we tell them the stories. But sometimes if we're telling our kids this, a story, but it's totally opposite of how the Bible portrays it, maybe we're doing them a disservice. As we look at, as we look at the flood, we, we see everyone die. <laughs> All animals die except for the ones on the ark. And, and we need to, as followers of, of God, have, have to look on and understand, like, why did that happen? Not turn away, not to try to paint a smiley picture over it, but we need to deal with it. I hope we can as we look at this passage today. As we're going through it, I think reading about the flood, it, it, it raises a number of questions that we're going to explore. H- how was Noah righteous? Everyone was so corrupt. How did how he build the ark? How did he fit all the animals into it? You know, what, was it a global flood? Some people say, oh no, it was just in a local area that this happened in. You know, what can we learn about God in all this? That's a huge thing I want us to see. As we, as we look at the flood, as we look at judgment upon humanity, what can we learn about God and then we'll, we'll start to ask, so what does that mean for us today as we look at this passage in the Old Testament? If you want to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Maybe a passage you know very well. These are the generations. This is um, Genesis 6, 9 starting in. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall... Come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you. 
Of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds. Of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I've seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and its mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and its mate, seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went to the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his son Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. And they, and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and brought the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heavens were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, and all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. The waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. May God bless his word to our souls this morning. We can have a seat. Just want to point out at the beginning there of, of Genesis 6 9 it says these are the generations of Noah if you'll notice in the book of Genesis we talked about every time you see that the generations of it begins a new section new section focusing on Noah it ends in uh, Genesis 9 where's that Genesis 9 29 with the death of Noah this is kind of the focus now Noah's life I want to just, it's going to be kind of a little bit different of a message. I just want to pull out different truths from this passage. Uh, things that I just want to bring to your attention. Instead of kind of going through it sec, uh, sequential, sequentially. It's a fun word to say. First thing I really want us to see though is how is Noah righteous? 
How is Noah righteous? First thing, actually, I want to point this out to you. It's going to kind of be a refrain through this message. Are we dealing with fact or fiction? This is a pretty big claim the Bible's making here. All along, there's big claims. People say, oh, yeah, like the fable of, of Noah, the fable of the ark. Are we dealing with fact or fiction? Well, the Bible, talking about Noah, seen as a real person in the Bible. Isaiah 54, verse 9, Ezekiel 14, 14. And verse 20 referred to this guy named Noah. And we'll find him actually in Luke 3.36 in the genealogy of Christ. Like why would you have a fictitious person in the genealogy? So I, I'm going to keep saying, are we dealing with fact or fiction? We're dealing with fact. And more and more, I'm just going to keep saying that. And more and more, I hope and pray you're going to be convinced like, wow, this is the word of God. This is history. This is what happened. So Noah, was he righteous? How was he righteous? Well, he was obedient to the Lord. Again, before looking at verse 9, there's verse 8 comes before it. It's the most mind-blowing thing you'll hear today. 8 comes before 9. No, <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. I can't. So verse 8, you see Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We looked at that last week. He landed there. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah hadn't done anything. God just had favor upon him. But then as God had favor upon him, smiled down upon him, Noah was obedient to God. But it, it's very important. Verse 8 comes before verse 9. But it says in verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Just like Enoch, one of his forefathers before, walked with God. Noah walked with God. Other translations say he was blameless among the people of his time. He walked faithfully with God or blameless among his contemporaries. Similar thing is said about Job in the Old Testament, that, that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And we see how he is righteous and how he obeys God's commands. There's a command given from 14 to 21. just starts with make yourself an ark and then goes into details of what the ark could look like. And then verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. It's kind of a frame over and over again we see here in, in Genesis 7, 5. And, and even when God told him to go into the ark, seven days the flood's going to come. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. It's like over and over again it says that. There's that old hymn, trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And often we're like, well, what should we do? Like, well, obey God. <laughs> That's what Noah did. God told him, this is what you need to do. And Noah was obedient to it. We have more that's said about Noah than and just kind of being obedient in Hebrews chapter 11. And just read that for you. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, it says this. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this... He condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So Noah, he lived by faith. He was obedient to God. He believed what God said and followed in his ways. Think about this. He, he believed God concerning the events as yet unseen. God's like, it's going to rain. Depending on how we look at Genesis, like maybe it hadn't even rained before. It's going to rain on the whole earth. The flood's going to come. So you're building this boat on dry land. He believed God. He did it in faith. And it says in reverent fear, he constructed an ark. He feared God. He obeyed him. He was hard at work. 
And think about this, how long between being asked to build and building his ark? Some people think maybe like, how long did it take? Maybe like 70 years. And the reason they say 70 years, because when Noah's 500, he started having his children. Maybe they got to about 30. They were able to help start building the ark because he was 600 when the flood came. And think about this. Maybe God gave him the commands to start building the ark and these are the requirements. This is what you have to do. And then Noah was obedient. Maybe he, maybe he built in silence. Maybe God said, hey, this is what you need to do. Now do it. Me didn't tell him anything else. But Noah, in faith and reverent fear, he built the ark. He was faithful again when no one else was, right? A time when the earth was corrupt, the violence was covering it. We looked at it last week, how bad it was. That the heart of man was, was exceedingly wicked. But yet Noah obeyed God. He was obedient. 2 Peter 2.5 also adds this about this time for Noah. 2 Peter 2.5 says this, If God did not spare the ancient world, but preserve Noah, a herald of righteousness, other translations, a preacher of righteousness. With seven others, he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. He was a herald of righteousness. He was building the ark, and then he was preaching as well. He was preaching the word. I don't know if he was like, look, judgment's coming. Blood is coming. I'm building an ark. We don't know. Maybe people were mocking him, ridiculing him. Like, what are you doing, you crazy man? Why are you just spending all your time on this thing? But Noah was faithful. Noah had faith in God and was obedient to him in a dark time in human history. He had a word from God and he was obedient to it. Even when everyone else was doing something different. But what about us? What about us? Do we have instructions from God? Yes, we have Matthew 28. Right? We call the Great Commission. And Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, he said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Until the end of the age, behold, I'm with you until the end of the age. That's, that's the mission of our church. We want to see lost people saved, saved people matured, mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. Because God's given us a word. He's given us instructions. And we're to be about that. Even if, if no one else is. I'm not talking about other churches. I mean the world and, and the direction it's going. We're like, we, we don't need another word from God. We've got it. We need to make disciples. Who make disciples. We need to baptize people in His name. We need to share our faith with everyone we can. So no, he obeyed. He, he built an ark. Going back there to Genesis. God's instructions. Make an ark of gopher wood. Does anyone know what gopher wood is? No, you don't. It, we're, we're not entirely sure of what it is. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's a word found only here in the Bible. Is it cypress wood? Some people think it's Indian team. Found in ancient Babylon. A very hard type of wood. But God said, make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Excuse me. <clears throat> we'll preach as long as I have a voice and if the Lord takes away. And blessed be the name of the Lord. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
God said this, make for yourself an ark of gopher wood, <clears throat> make rooms in the ark, cover it inside and out with pitch. This pitch, we're not quite sure exactly what it was. It was some painted on, some sort of covering. It was resin, waterproofing, probably, most likely. One commentator, Sarfati, has to say, his name is Jonathan Sarfati. There's another guy, Amar Sarfati. But just have to, uh, I'm like, oh yeah, I should correct that. So when I say Sarfati, it's Jonathan Sarfati. For those who know, know what I'm talking about there. It says it's a resinous covering on both sides of a rigid wall, provides very strong impact resistance, like painting on both sides. So you think of pressure that would be against the arc covering it, made it that much stronger. Uh, some people think, hey, Noah, how did he build the ark? Maybe he hired people. Maybe he had the funds to hire people. We read earlier in Cain's line, this guy named Tubal Cain started forming instruments of bronze. So maybe he had these instruments to help, you know, start cutting the wood and preparing it. And maybe he hired people to do it. Or maybe he just had his sons helping him the whole time. But he, he built the ark. Interesting, this term ark, the word for ark, it's the same word used for Moses. Like when Moses was a little baby and he was put into a basket, that's the same word. And interesting about this, uh, one commentator is helpful here. He says it seems to be derived from an Egyptian word meaning box or chest. Box or chest. So this is like creation scientists, there's debate on was the ark just a giant box? I think that's what God is saying in his word. And other people, you know, have a picture of a boat. Um, but it seems to be a giant box. And why it's significant, an Egyptian word using for box. One, it tells us the shape of the ark. And secondly, it reminds us Moses wrote Genesis. And so every once in a while you see some of the Egyptian phrases, places, or words. Well, Moses, he was trained in Egypt. And he wrote the book of Genesis. Again, just further proof of that. So built an ark. I just want to talk about the size of the ark for a moment. Sarfati is helpful here again. The ark has the equivalent volume, like inside. I forgot to take the measurements out and in to try to give us that uh, picture in our minds. But volume-wise, of over 340 semi-trailers, the ark would be wider than a six-lane U.S. interstate highway. I know that helps us in Canada, but <laughs> very wide. Then it had three decks. I guess the three decks, if you put all of the measurements together, you could fit 22 full-length basketball courts in there. I don't know how big the soccer field is. I think, I was thinking in my mind, I don't know if there would be like 18 of them. Or like, it, so it's massive, a massive amount of room, a massive amount of volume. So then we have, because we have to ask the question, how did, so we know built this ark, this massive thing, how do you get the animals in the ark? How do you get the animals in the ark? Look at verses 19 and 20. Of every living thing, this is God commanding Noah, of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They should be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground, according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. I think, I think that's key. What we see here is maybe the first animal migration. Right? Like, like birds, certain birds just go to the south. They go to certain places, certain turtles always go to the place that they're born, like it's innate in them. I think God put in certain animals to go to the ark at a time they're supposed to. Some animals had to start long before others. And I'm just saying that to tell you this Charles Spurgeon quote, which I love. 
This is worth writing down. By perseverance, the snail reached the ark. I like it. You don't have to. By perseverance, the snail reached the ark. So if every animal started, the snail like immediately got going. <laughs> but so there were two animals, or male and female, but then there were seven of the clean ones, male and female. And the clean ones there, I believe it's because for sacrifices to God, Though it's actually only later on in Scripture that we start to define what is clean and unclean. But it seems, I think that's what it would be saying. That's why we need these clean animals to sacrifice to God. So seven of those. Just a few thoughts of what I've read. How did that work? How did you have all those animals on an ark? I'm kind of, I keep on to push towards the skeptic. I want to speak towards the person who's like, how did that happen? Well, one, I think maybe the animals were, were young. Or, or babies. Like extremely young. Right? As we know as you have children, like the bigger they get, the more they eat. <laughs> it's the same, same with animals. So I think they were young. I think they were babies. So I think we need less food, less waste. I think maybe even some of the animals were in a, like a hibernation type state on the ark. Like a bear hibernates. Like they're not sitting there feasting all the time. They're sleeping. I think that could have been happening. Henry Morris says this. Most land animals are small, of course, so this did not by any means represent an impossible task. Authorities on biological taxonomy estimate that there are less than 18,000 species of mammals, bird, reptiles, and amphibians living in the world today. Another guy just points out that um, about 11% of the animals would have been larger than a sheep. So there have been, very, there have been a lot of very small animals. And also if you just think that there was the kinds or the species of animals. You know, say if you had like two dogs, you don't have like every descendant of, of dogs. Those descendants came from that. Maybe there's a genetic makeup for those different dogs to be after. Just, just things to think through. I think there's way more information you can get thinking through how the animals were on the ark. But again, are we talking about fact or fiction? I'd say we're talking about fact. Talking about fact or fiction, was it a, a global flood? I think this is so significant. I'm going to spend a little bit more time there. Was it a global flood? Look at Genesis 6, 17. God said this, For behold, I'll bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, which is the breath of life under heaven. The word flood, Henry Morris says this, used here for the first time, applies only to the, to the, the, the flood, the Noahic flood. Other flows... Other floods have different words. And this word flood is actually taken from an Assyrian word meaning destruction. Still, you can say, oh, what? How, how do we know we're actually talking about history here? Look at Genesis 7:11. It happened at a certain time. Genesis 7:11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, <laughs> on that day, all the foundations of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heaven were open. Like why a specific time? Because that's exactly when it happened. That's recorded for us. But we don't know exactly when that is. We don't know what calendar he was, he was using. There's many different kind of estimates on that. But it happened on a specific day, a specific time. Again, look at, look at what's said about the flood. Continuing on verse 11. On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were open. 
Like, what does that bring to mind? The great deep burst forth. I don't know if there's pockets of water just opened up underground, just, just opening up. And then the windows of the heaven opening up. Keel says this, the flood was produced by the bursting forth of fountains hidden within the earth, which drove seas and rivers above their banks, and by rain, which continually, incessantly poured for 40 days and 40 nights. Right, we see in verse 12, rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And just want to point this out, this is the first time we see that phrase, 40 days and 40 nights. Every time you see it in the Bible, it's significant. Right, you have, you have Moses when he goes up on the mountain, receive the Ten Commandments. How long? Forty days and forty nights. You have the twelve spies when they went into the, the promised land. How long were they in the promised land? Forty days and forty nights. The Old Testament, you have Elijah when he was fleeing and he ran for forty days and forty nights. Every time you see that, something significant is happening in Scripture. Jesus, after he's baptized, he's led by Spirit into the desert for forty days and forty nights. So this is something very significant is happening here. Obviously, we know the story. I'm just pointing that out, that refrain. Was it all the earth? Look at 7, 17 to 20 with me. How specific the text is. I don't know how anyone could argue otherwise, but still, it says this. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. Like that must mean a local area. No, like it means the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. The waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heavens were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. It was about 20 feet above the mountains. That's where the ark rested. So again, I saw like a skeptic, like really? Like you believe in a global flood? Like, ridiculous. I just want to just bring some evidence before you. We'll look at Scripture. I believe it's the Word of God. I believe what God is saying. Just think for a moment in terms of, uh, I believe, what the flood caused, what we can see and observe here on the earth. Just think about footprints for a moment. Like, if you step in the ground outside, it's only going to last a few days, whether the wind coming through or the rain coming down. Like, it gets wiped out, and the footprint is no more. So you think, like, that footprints would be preserved in the ground. Like what happened to preserve it? There's this place I want to bring your attention. It's in Queensland, Australia, Lark Quarry. And the reason it's famous is there's 3,300 dinosaur footprints in the ground. They discovered it in 1976 doing excavations. Like, wow, look at these dinosaur footprints. As they uncovered it, they noticed that the weather was starting to deteriorate these dinosaur footprints. So they had to put a building over it, they had to put air conditioning and like a certain temperature. If you think about that, so how could dinosaurs run around the earth and then millions of years happen and we still have these footprints? No, something happened to cover those footprints, right? One author says this, Romilio, he says, many of the tracks are not full footprints and are instead likely to have been made by a swimming dinosaur whose feet barely touched the bottom. So this trackway was likely not the result of a stampede at all, but the dinosaurs maybe fleeing from a flood. If you think about, one author wrote this, the fossil record is not a record of succession of great ages, like the ones on the bottom, like millions and millions of years ago, but actually it, it's, it's more of a, a sequence of burial. Like these ones on the bottom got buried first. 
They just think about again, like how an animal dies, and what happens? Like coyotes come, and like or vultures, and in time, there's like barely anything left of that. But then, why would you find fossils like wholly intact, or some fossils that had like some seemingly had food preserved in their bellies? Like what happened so quick that allowed the fossils to be preserved in such a way? Sarfati, I'm going to quote him often in this section, said this, At the beginning, when the fountains of the great deep were bursting, this would have generated underwater mudslides. Huge amounts of bottom-dwelling marine life would have been buried and fossilized right away. It's thus not surprising that we see marine invertebrates at the bottom of the fossil record. Also, about 95% of all fossils are shellfish. Like, that's interesting, right? So again, just proving the flood. Think about rapidly formed canyons. A deep V-shaped valleys are an obvious result of channelized water flow. Even on a small scale, canyons have been produced in days in modern times. A huge mud flow from Mount St. Helens produced Little Grand Canyon in one afternoon in 1982. Just a lot of water. A few weeks ago, we went down to Lower Mainland BC. We drove in the Coquihalla. We saw the effects of the rains that poured down in the fall. And it was actually just a few days of, of torrential downpour and we saw like a new channel carved out of the mountain because in just a few days and then wiped out another section and kind of made a new valley. That's a few days of rain. Have you guys ever experienced torrential rain? I, I remember uh, years ago working at this place and like I was, I was going home and my car was maybe like five feet away outside the door and it was just pouring. I had something I had to do, so I'm like, I gotta get to my car. So, you know, like you open up the door, you time it, and you run as fast as you can, and I was completely soaked from head to foot, right? And five, five feet. Think about if it's raining like that, the, uh, the ocean's opening up, water flooding, and it's raining like that all over the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Just a, another kind of, uh, <clears throat> Just more evidence. There's, there's so much more I could say. I'll just say this last thing. I had a friend who used to go like going out towards west of Caroline up to the mountains. And he said he always found uh, fossils of crustaceans up, up in the mountains. You're like, how did these sea creatures get up on the mountain? And we as Christians, we're like, we don't have to ask that question. We're like, oh, well, yeah, it's because of global flood. And the more you look into it, the more evidence there is. And if there's not just evidence in that, I just want to also bring before you quickly, I think this is really interesting, history. I believe the Bible's history, just history outside of the Bible. Do you know that thousands of flood legends exist all over the world? Just, just, just hear this for a second. This is Carol Hill. I'm just saying it because it's not me. I don't know who Carol Hill is. She's a scientist. <laughs> in fact... People who live far away from the sea or in mountainous areas have flood traditions, which are similar to the Genesis account. For instance, the Pawnee tribe in Nebraska has the following tradition. The creator, Tirawa, destroyed the first people who were giants by water because of his indignation about their corruption. In addition, the Mayo, Mayo tribe who resides in southwest China, listen to this, has a tradition which is like the Genesis account even before they met Christian missionaries. According to their tradition, when God destroyed the whole world by the flood because of the wickedness of man, Nuah, the righteous man and his wife, Matriarch, I don't know why she got that name, 
Their sons, Lohan, Loshan, and Jahu, survived by building a very broad ship and embarked on it with pairs of animals. This is, some Chinese tribe has this, this tradition. Almost every Amazonian society ever studied has a legend about a great flood. I'm just gonna, just very quickly, I think this is interesting. In ancient Mesopotamia, they have a flood story. In Hawaii, there's a flood story. In Greece, in India, the Incas in Thailand, like all throughout the world, there's this global flood story. Like what? Fact or fiction? We're talking about fact, right? We're talking about facts. It actually happened further proof we can trust the word of God. Like friends, we need to be in God's word. We need to be trusting what it says. Even sometimes we don't understand. Sometimes there's not maybe evidence, geological evidence to back it up yet. We can trust the word of God. So all, all this being said, I want to pull some other things out of, of this story. I want to continue to seek to build a biblical worldview. That, that's our desire going into Genesis. What does the Bible say? How does it affect how we live our lives? We want to see God in a greater picture. We want to see God's sovereignty. We had a visiting a preacher a few weeks ago, Paul Whittingstall, and he talked about how Isaiah had that vision of God. He's on his throne. Every time you see in Scripture, God is always on his throne. It's occupied. He's sovereign. So we see here, God caused the flood. I don't know if you've ever watched any disaster movies. I don't know if they're less popular now or what. You know where like there's a great flood or there's earthquakes happening or a meteorite going to hit the earth. And what happens? Like men and women are the heroes. They're like, we, we can figure out a way out. We'll save civilization. But no, in scripture, in the Bible, actually man is the reason for the disaster. And God is the cause of it. God is sovereign. We see he's sovereign because he, he tells Noah what is going to happen before it happens. A flood's going to come. Build an ark. Build it to these requirements. And then it happens exactly as he said it would. We see in Genesis 7, 16, the end of it, I love, and the Lord shut him in. Everyone goes into the ark. All the animals go into the ark. God closes the door. God tells him what's going to happen. God prepares, hey Noah, build it like this. God brings the animals. They all go in. God closes the door. God is sovereign. He is on his throne. Think about God's sovereignty in our own lives. I don't know about you. Do you ever deal with, even today, the unknowns of the future? Maybe maybe just me. I was like trying to plan and, I, and I, you just don't know what's going to happen. Sometimes it can cause worry and anxiety as we're trying to look towards the future and plan and, 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 and seek to honor God in that. But think about it. If we, if we get anxious and, and worry about it, we're like, we're not trusting that God is sovereign. We're not trusting that he's in control. I thought it, it, it's like, say if you went to the mechanic and you're getting stuff done, they put it up on those big jacks and the vehicle's sitting up there, but you didn't trust the jacks. And so you went in there and you see, like, started pushing against the car. And you're actually, you're actually putting in effort. You're actually like maybe gonna hurt your muscles, but you're doing nothing. <laughs> you're doing nothing to keep that car up there. That's what it'd be like as we worry and we're anxious about what's going to happen. Like, no, God is sovereign. As we look at the story of the flood, we know God is sovereign. We need to lay more things at His feet and trust that He is on His throne. 
We see God built the world and all that's in it. We see God destroyed it. So something we really have to come to grips with in our understanding of God, we have to see God's judgment on sin in this text. Look at 6, 11 to 13, talking about how bad it was. The earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted the way on the earth. God said, no, I've determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them within the earth. We saw it in Genesis 6, 5, it said, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And what's the result of this great flood? Look at, at 7, 21 to 23. And all flesh die that move on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostril was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals, creeping things, and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. Only eight people spared. That, that should like shock us. What do you do with that? How do you explain it? Does your view of God allow the flood? And what, I, what I mean by that, we have kind of in, in, in North American Christianity, God is love, He's love, and He's love. God, God, God is love. God is holy. Interesting though, before the throne of God, what's said for all of eternity continuously is God is holy, holy, holy. There's none like Him. And we see His holiness as we looked at Genesis chapter 3. One act of sin. Adam and Eve got kicked out of God's presence. God is holy. He is pure. And God is righteous. He always does what is right. He is just. And because He's just, He must punish sin. He must punish sinners. None of us, if, if something happened to one of our family members, would ever want to go and see a judge who's unjust, who turned and looked away from the evidence and didn't deal with anything. We want a just judge. When we see a just judge in the Bible, it shocks us. Can we trust that God does what is right? Yes. No one died innocently. Friends, this is important we understand this because then you, if you keep reading in Scripture, then you get to, as, as, as the Hebrews are leaving Egypt, and we, and we see that the, the Red Sea closes in on the Egyptians. God judges that nation. Is God just in that? Yes. He is, he is the Lord above. As, as the people go into the Promised Land, the place is, is just laden with sin, idolatry, sexual immorality. God is just. He's like wiped out the people in this land. And then if you continue, if you follow their ways, you'll be wiped out too. And it does happen to many of the, the Israelites. I don't think the right question to ask is like, how could God do that? But to ask, why doesn't He do it to us now? 
I think that's the right question we should be asking. Why does not God not just send his judgment upon us, upon our nation, upon this world now? We see so clearly in the flood, God brings judgment to sin. We know individually, those of us who are in Christ, we've been spared the, the wrath of God because we're in Jesus Christ. We'll talk more about that now. But why is God not judging the world now? I just want to bring your attention to 2 Peter again. Looking at verses 3, chapter 3 and verses 4 to 10. Just thinking about this question, Peter here is talking about the return of Christ. But why doesn't God judge the world now? 2 Peter chapter 3, looking at verse 4 first. Talking about mockers, they will say, where is the promise of this coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Day two, or day three of creation there. Look at verse six. And by that means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water, was flooded with water, and it perished. And by the same word, so we, we're talking about the destruction in Genesis 7. Yes, this had happened. In verse 7, but by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So we read of God's judgment during the flood as fact. We know it happened. This is how it actually happened. And as we see that, we also read in scripture there's a judgment to come. When Jesus Christ returns, and we can maybe ask when we see what's happening in the world, why? Why has it not happened yet? Because of God's patience. Because of His kindness. That more would repent of their sins and turn towards Him. As we, as we read this in, in, in Genesis, we read the flood, as we read this in 2 Peter, what should it do? What if we know that this judgment is coming? It happened in Noah's time. No one believed it's coming. Maybe in our time, Jesus Christ is going to return. There's going to be a greater judgment upon this earth. One that should cause us to confess. Short accounts with the Lord. Seeking to live lives of holiness. As we see things in our life are not pleasing, like, God, forgive me. Lord, change. None of us are perfect. We're all broken. We're all seeking to walk with God as best we can by His Spirit. But it should cause us to be quick to confess. I think also just seeing that like Jesus is going to come back again, just as there's destruction in Noah's flood, there's going to be a destruction to come. It should cause us to pray. Pray for our family. Pray for our loved ones. Pray for those who don't know the Lord. It should cause us to look for more opportunities to share Christ with people. I don't know Noah tried. Hey, there's a flood coming. He's building the ark. No, one, no one's listening, but we know, hey, there's, there's a greater judgment coming. Everyone's going to have to stand before Jesus Christ and give an account. 
So we need to plead with people. We need to pray with people. We need to share with people. In, in reading this, this section of Scripture and focusing on Noah's flood, it reminded me of this passage in the New Testament. Just like the days of Noah, just looking at Luke 17, 26 and 27, Jesus again talking about his second coming. You're like, what's it going to be like when you come back? It's also in Matthew 24 there as well. Jesus says this, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. They were just living their lives, just pursuing their goals, just living their best life now, carrying on. Noah preached. He preached to people. They didn't flock to God. Judgment came. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so be in the days that the Son of Man returns. Friends, looking at Genesis 7, looking at the flood, reading these passages, it should shoot out at us concerning the world and shoot out at the world to come. What, what, I, what I mean by that, we read in Scripture of like, well, God destroyed everything. We read He's going to do it again. And that should just wake us up. It should be like an alarm going off, ever increasing in noise, like get our attention. Reading about the flood, meditating upon it this week, it makes me think of the judgment to come. It makes me think more on eternity. Makes me desire to live more fully for God. Jesus said this, also in Luke 17, 33, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. Lose your life for Jesus Christ and you keep it. How do we live with this perspective? The Bible keeps calling our attention back. Don't just focus on today. I don't know about you. In, in day to day, sometimes if I'm like doing well, I can kind of see the week. Like I kind of may know what's happening in a few days. I'm trying to do my best. If I'm really good, I can maybe see a bigger picture of the month. Often it's like day to day, right? Like you're just getting by and then the next day comes and you're just getting by. But these passages, what they do, it's like, wake up. No, there's, there's eternity to come. There's a judgment to come. This life is not completely it. And so what we need to live absolutely in today, but with an eye on eternity. It should cause us to live differently. If Christ were coming back today, would it change how you lived it? I would say yes, absolutely. And then it, it convicts me. Friends, as, as we're coming out of this, it's like, okay, things are open and things are happening again. And maybe we'll put open in quotations. But as people are starting, we're starting to go this way and go that way, like, it's, it's not about this life. This life is but a moment. Live it to your best. Live it for the Lord, but live it with an eye on eternity to come. This passage, looking at the flood, man, it grabs hold of me. It wakes me up. I pray it does to you too. And lastly, I just want you to see, as we looked at the ark, as we looked at the flood, the ark is a picture of salvation. The flood. Everyone died. But eight, those who are in the ark, those who trusted God, those inside, they survived. Our sins, 
Our sins deserve God's judgment on our own. It leads to an eternity in hell. But Christ, but for those who run to Christ, we find forgiveness in him. We find mercy in him. We're saved from God's wrath. Just as Noah and the seven with him entered into the ark and they were spared the judgment. So everyone who would flee and run to Christ would be spared the judgment of God. One, Christ took it on our behalf. That's the most amazing thing, friends. Take that with you if you hear nothing else. If you're here today and you, you don't know the Lord in that way, I would, I would exhort you, run to Christ. There's a judgment coming. He's the only way to be saved. It's to be found in Him. Trust in Jesus. Cry out for His mercy. He'll save you. Have mercy on you. Because friends, what's the, the definition of salvation? It means to be saved. But to be saved from what? To be saved from God's punishment. His just punishment on sinners. But in Christ, we are hidden. Those of us in Him, we are saved. Just think about this in closing. For those in the ark, do you think there was boasting? For those sitting in the ark, the eight of them, I'm sure there was no boasting. I'm sure at times there was a, there was a holy hush. For those of us in Christ, who can boast? None of us can boast. As he said, it's not about me, it's not about you, it's about him. That's what we can boast in God's mercy. We can boast in the Lord. So friend, even as, as we look at the ark, I believe as we turn our attention, we look at the cross, it's a reminder of God's kindness to us. Even as we look at such great judgment, we look at Jesus Christ who took that great judgment that we deserved upon Himself. That we would be hidden with Him. That we would find mercy, God's kindness, God's grace. We serve such a merciful God. Even though He is just, He's also kind, He's also merciful. You bow with me as I close this time in prayer. Oh Lord, I thank You for your word. Lord, I know looking at the flood, you need to soften my heart more, Lord. It doesn't shock me as it should. Dealing with such destruction, such judgment, Lord. I pray again, the things that are from you seal in our hearts, Lord. All, all that's, that's just from me, Lord, may we forget. But, oh, Lord, we thank you that even talking of the judgment to come, we have a place, a, a place to hide in Jesus Christ, oh, Lord. Seal that word in our hearts. Oh, God, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.